Scripture in this morning will be Luke chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 27 through 40. If you would all please stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 20, verses 27 through verse 40. <clears throat> there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that resurrection, to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Father, we pray now that you would instruct us from your word about these important truths concerning the resurrection, concerning our life and hope in you. Pray, God, that you would help us, each one of us, to submit ourselves to the teaching of Scripture. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, continuing our journey with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, we're in Jerusalem during what's called Passion Week. Uh, this is just a few days before Jesus is going to be arrested and ultimately crucified. Uh, Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and immediately, you remember, he drove out the money changers from the temple and he set up shop right there in the temple to start teaching the people uh, who would all be in town for the week of Passover. All of this infuriated the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, uh, they came and challenged his authority in front of all those crowds of people. Jesus, of course, responded to them with this parable of coming judgment uh, that would be uh, against those religious leaders who had rejected the prophets and killed the Son of God. And they became so angry at this parable when they realized that, that he was talking about them that they decided to do exactly what he had predicted. They began to plot his death. They were absolutely determined to kill Jesus. He had ruined their business of selling merchandise in the temple. Uh, he was leading people to reject their false teachings. And now he had publicly shamed them uh, with this parable and said that they were going to be facing God's judgment. And so they want him dead. Now, we said last week that they really needed to accomplish two objectives in order to get to the point where they could crucify Christ. Uh, first of all, they needed to turn public, public uh, opinion against him. Uh, Jesus is very popular with the crowds of people at this time. Many of them are convinced that he is their Messiah who would deliver them from Rome. And so when he comes into the city, there's those shouts of joy. There's a parade there to welcome him, uh, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so public opinion right now, uh, Jesus is very popular. Uh, they're on his side. And so the religious leaders of Jerusalem, they need to turn the favor of the people against Jesus. Otherwise, when they go to arrest him, the crowds are going to protect him and a, a mob is likely to form against them. The second thing they need to do in order to have Jesus killed 
is they need to have some sort of charge against him, something that they can bring to the government as a reason why he ought to be put to death. And so they came up with these clever questions that we looked at last week, uh, where they asked him, Jesus, whether or not they should pay taxes to the Roman government. They figured that Jesus would either say, yes, you should pay taxes, or no, you shouldn't pay taxes. And either way, they would get him. Uh, If he said yes, the people would turn against him. They were expecting Jesus to fight Rome, not fund them. And if he said no, then they could turn him over to Rome and say, hey, this guy is, is telling people not to pay their taxes to Rome. And so it was a very clever question, but in the end, it failed to accomplish what they were hoping for. Jesus gave an answer that was so profound that they had nothing to say in response. They were amazed, and they became silent at his answer. That's where we left off last week. And so this morning, we see the second attempt. They're still trying to get Jesus in trouble. These are trick questions that they're bringing to Jesus, trying to trip him up or uh, bring up something that Jesus cannot answer. And this one is a doctrinal question. They had tried a political question last time, and Jesus, of course, outsmarted them. And so now they think they can get him into theological knots with this question about the resurrection. And so we begin there in verse 27, which says, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, the Sadducees were a religious group in Israel. Uh, They were sort of the opposite of the Pharisees in many ways. Uh, The Pharisees, you remember, added all sorts of rules to Scripture. Uh, They had the Old Testament as well as the Mishnah and the Talmud. And these these were uh, detailed books of rules and standards that they lived by as a part of their religious separation. The Sadducees, on the other hand, really only held to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. They did not uh, accept the teachings of the prophets or the writings of the rest of Scripture, only the books of Moses they considered to be Scripture. Another way in which the Pharisees and Sadducees were opposite was in their view of supernatural beings. Uh, The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees did not. Uh, The Pharisees also believed in a resurrection, that there would be life after death. The Sadducees did not believe in any sort of afterlife. And you see that mentioned here even in verse 27. The Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. As someone said, uh, that's why they were so sad, you see, Uh, which is a very lame joke, but it's a good way to remember. The Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. And so verse 28, you see their question. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Uh, Not surprising, they start off with the law of Moses. And in Leviticus, the Jews were given this concept of Leverite marriage. Uh, Many reasons for this. We're not going to get into all of that today. Uh, Part of it was to preserve the bloodlines of each tribe of Israel. Uh, Part of it was also to provide for widows. Uh, Notice that in the law of Moses, it said, you know, if this widow dies having no children, the assumption would be if she had children, the children could take care of her. Uh, but in Jewish culture, you know, in the Middle East, in many places even today, if, uh, if a woman becomes a widow, she has no way to really support herself. And so the brother would then marry this widowed wife and take care of her. Uh, but the Sadducees, they only bring up this, this issue in order to ask a question that they think is going to disprove the resurrection. Here comes their hypothetical scenario. Verse 29, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left, no children, and died. 
So all their seven brothers, they all end up married to this woman and they all die before her. Now, I'm not sure if it was her cooking or what, uh, but apparently being married to this lady was basically a death sentence. Verse 32 says, afterward, afterward, the woman also dies. So you've got this lady, all seven of her previous husbands, all dead. And here comes the question, verse 33. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, this is kind of a dumb question, but it's the sort of thing that the Sadducees thought of as reasons to disbelieve in the concept of life after death. Uh, the Pharisees, who did believe in the resurrection, they had also pondered such questions, and they came up with answers. Uh, this, this is so typical of the Pharisees to come up with answers that the Bible doesn't even address. Uh, for example, one rabbi started the conversation asking, uh, what would we wear in the resurrection? Uh, what kind of clothing would we have? And they really couldn't imagine everybody being naked after the resurrection. So they decided that whatever clothes you were wearing at the point of your death, uh, that would be what you would be wearing in the resurrection. Uh, likewise, others have concluded that whatever possessions you were buried with, those would make it over to the other side of death with you. And this sort of thinking isn't just held among many Jews. In some cultures uh, throughout history, there have been people buried with their horse and hunting weapons. Uh, the thought being that in the next life, they would have those with them. Some husbands would be buried uh, with their wives in order to be together in the afterlife. All of this is built upon these sort of questions about how our life now relates to our life then. So the Sadducees, they think they've got Jesus here uh, because it wouldn't make sense that you're married to whoever you're married to last because what about all those previous husbands? Uh, is, is the poor guy single forever in heaven just because his wife married somebody else afterward? Here's Jesus' answer, verse 35. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So the answer is none of the seven. She's not going to, mar to be married in the resurrection. Marriage is a feature of this age, not the age to come. And this is understandable when you think about what marriage is. First of all, marriage is about companionship and friendship. You go back to the book of Genesis. Uh, the reason Eve was created was to be a helper for Adam. Uh, so Adam would not be alone. Obviously, having children, sustaining the human race, that's all right there in Genesis as well. As soon as God uh, brings Adam and Eve together, he says, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. And so those were reasons that God instituted uh, marriage back in the book of Genesis. And in the resurrection, those reasons no longer apply. Uh, we don't need to have kids in order to keep reproducing and sustaining human life because we can't die anymore. And that relational aspect of marriage is going to be surpassed by our relationship with God himself. Uh, this is probably impossible for us to, gra uh, to fully grasp this side of eternity. But Paul says that human marriage was meant to be a symbol of the relationship between God and his people. Just as the husband is to love and provide and lead the wife, so God loves and provides and leads us. As the wife is to honor and submit and serve the husband, so the church is to honor and submit and serve God. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. This is in the resurrection. Uh, Christ will present the church, his people, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then quoting from Genesis, Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage from the very beginning uh, was a picture of what's to come. It's a taste of the eternal relationship that we will have with Christ forever. And that relationship with God is going to outshine even the closest and best relationships on earth. I think of it maybe like being at a beach. Uh, suppose you're there with your family, you're at a beach enjoying you know, the scenery all around you, and then uh, maybe somebody has their phone out and they're looking at pictures of a beach on their phone. And you would think, what's wrong with you? Uh, the real thing is right in front of you. Put the phone away. You're here. And that's what the presence of God will be for us. We don't need the picture anymore. The closeness that you feel to a friend or a relative or a spouse, that is nothing compared to the relationship that you'll have with God. It is then that your soul will be ultimately satisfied. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The good things of this life, the best things of this life, are merely a taste of what's to come. Whatever pleasures or comforts or satisfaction there is here, it's a whisper of eternity in the presence of God. Think of it like a person who has been living underground their entire life. They've never seen the world above them. Uh, now imagine trying to explain to them what the sun is like. Uh, maybe you point to a lamp and you say it's sort of like that, but it's way more. It, it creates light like that light bulb, uh, but the light bulb really is a lame comparison to the sun. The sun is so much bigger and brighter, so bright you can't even stand to look at it. And it warms the earth by its power. All of this would be difficult for someone who's never seen the sun to really picture. In a similar way, a good and happy marriage in this life, as great as, great as it is, is merely a whisper of the joy to come. And so in the resurrection, we won't be married to one another. Our love and devotion will be found in our Creator. And so that's the answer to their gotcha question. Uh, now Jesus addresses the question behind the question, because, of course, they only bring this up in order to challenge the concept of life after death. And so Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. Verse 37, but that the dead are raised. So now he's, he's answering the question they didn't actually ask. <laughs> Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now notice what Jesus does here. Uh, the Sadducees, as we said earlier, they reject the Old Testament except the first five books. Uh, the Law of Moses, that's what they consider to be Scripture. And because there's no resurrection mentioned in the first five books, that's why they don't believe in it. And so what Jesus does is he points to a familiar text from those very books and that, in fact, does prove the reality of the resurrection. He reminds them of the passage where Moses encounters God in the book of Exodus in the burning bush and God says to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, the three of them had been dead for a long time at that point. Moses lived well after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is generations later. 
Yet God does not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am their God, implying that they are still alive. Verse 38, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And then verse 39 says, some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. If you're keeping track from last week and this week, the score so far is two to nothing, Jesus lead. And next week, we'll see Jesus really turn the tables because he asks them a question uh, that they have no answer for. We'll save that for next week. But for today, let's consider what can we take from a text like this for our own instruction and edification. First of all, we must recognize that Jesus believed in absolute truth. A lot of Christians today don't want to say with certainty much of anything. And so we say things like, well, you have your truth and I have mine. Uh, Jesus did not talk that way. Uh, he didn't say, well, this is what I believe. You're free to believe whatever you want. No, he says, you're wrong. <laughs> there is a resurrection. And you Sadducees are believing a lie in thinking that there isn't. Of course, we'll see uh, some of the same spirit even more on display in our culture around us. I mean, today we can't even say that there's such a thing as a man or a woman anymore uh, because all truth is relative. If they feel like a woman or they want to be a woman, who are you to say otherwise? It's considered unloving bigotry to believe in absolute truth, facts. And so the Bible increasingly is becoming less and less popular in our postmodern world. But the answers to the problems of our society are only found in Scripture. And so the only way that the division and chaos we see increasing all around us is ever going to be fixed is if we as a society return to Scripture as our guide and basis of truth. Listen to Jesus' words to the Sadducees. This is Mark's account of the same story. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. We as followers of Jesus must agree with what Jesus says here. Uh, those who teach anything that contradicts, contradicts Scripture, they are wrong. Jesus says it twice there. Uh, this is not just a matter of opinion. Now, of course, it is possible uh, for two people who love the Lord, who read the same Bible, to come to slightly different conclusion, conclusions about some minor points of theological uh, doctrine. But even in that, somebody is right and somebody is wrong. It's not like we're just free to think whatever we want, and as long as our heart is in the right place, none of it matters. Uh, doctrine mattered to Jesus, and it ought to matter to us as well. But I'm going to get ahead of myself. Uh, next thing we learn from Jesus' statements here is that the Bible is to be the basis of all true doctrine. Notice what he says. Matthew's version of the story, very similar to what we just read. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The Bible is the standard by which all teaching must be tested. The Sadducees were wrong about there not being a resurrection because they didn't know the scriptures. Uh, even those first five books of Moses, the ones that they accepted, uh, if they had read them more carefully, as Jesus points out, they should have known that there is a life after death. And so we learn that there are absolute truths. Uh, there is false teaching and true teaching. And now we learn how to discern between the two. How do we know if our teaching is true? Uh, the question is, does it align with scripture? That is the test of truth. Listen to what Luke writes over in Acts chapter 17. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. 
Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so Paul and Silas, they come to Berea, they preach the message of Christ, and the Bereans respond by listening carefully, and then they go home and study the Bible, and they check what they said against what Scripture says to see if it's true. And verse 12 says, Many of them therefore believed, because they had studied the Bible, compared what they were being told by Paul and Silas to what was uh, written in Scripture. Therefore, because of that, they ended up believing the truth of the gospel. And this is, where every, this is what every one of us ought to do. Certainly, God has given teachers to the church to help us learn and grow in our study of Scripture. I, I hope that's what I do here. Uh, but there are a lot of crazy preachers out there, especially on Christian television and the Internet. There's, uh, of course, some great Bible teachers out there as well. But you're not going to be able to discern the difference uh, between who is telling you the truth and who isn't unless you have first immersed yourself in the Bible on your own. You've got to become familiar with biblical teaching. Uh, the best way to learn true doctrine is simply to read the Bible for yourself and compare what others say with what God's Word teaches. Doctrine matters. What we believe affects how we live. Uh, certainly, Christianity can never be reduced to simply a head full of theological concepts. Uh, following Jesus means loving people, living holy lives, serving our Lord. But it also includes doctrine. Uh, we as Christians unite around a set of beliefs that are taught in God's Word. And so growing as a Christian, again, it's, it's more than simply gaining theological knowledge, but it's not less. It includes that. We must learn the truth if we are to live as God would have us and share our faith with others. Now, on the issue of the resurrection itself, uh, really nothing is more central in Christian doctrine than our belief in the resurrection from the dead. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is our gospel message. Uh, there is no gospel without the resurrection from the dead. This gets right to the core of what it means to be a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but you don't believe in the resurrection, I'm not sure what you mean. Unless you think I'm overstating my point, listen to what Paul writes a few verses later, verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The whole thing is a sham. If there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection from the dead, there is no Christianity. Verse 17, he continues, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 18, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And notice the language Paul uses. He doesn't just say, I think there's a resurrection or I have faith that it's real. Paul says this is a settled fact. Christ has been raised from the dead and he's the first of many. Others will be raised who are in Christ. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. When Jesus returns to earth, we will be raised back to life. Verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ is reigning even now. He's conquering uh, by the blood of his cross through the spreading of the gospel. And this message of the death and resurrection of Christ for sinners will continue to spread until all nations and all peoples of the earth are in submission to Christ. And then the last enemy that will be destroyed is death itself. We will be raised back to life, never to die again. The resurrection for Paul was a fact. It's a reality. And we know this because scripture, which is the standard of all truth, clearly and repeatedly tells us of this coming life after death. This belief has massive consequences. Not only is it the basis for our faith, uh, for our salvation, but it's also the motivation for how we ought to live. I want to close with these last two verses here in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul gives, in the same chapter, uh, two contrasting worldviews between people who believe in life after death and those who don't. Verse 32, Paul says, If the dead are not raised, so if you believe there is no life after death, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this life is all there is, live in pleasure, because you'll be dead soon and none of it really matters. But if there is a resurrection coming after death, then you have verse 58. This is at the very end of this chapter, describing in detail how we will be raised back to life, given glorified bodies that are immortal. Paul concludes with these words, Therefore, because of all of this, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So why do we live for the Lord? Ultimately, the answer is because there is a coming resurrection. If this life was all there was, you might as well live for yourself. But since there is a coming resurrection, since there is life after death, it matters how you live. And we ought to live and work for Christ, who in the end will raise us up to live eternally with him.